This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And hey guys, how's it going? How's it going indeed? How are you? I'm doing all right. I am, um, I'm engaging in a new kind of fight about my house with a man. Uh-oh, another fight. Another fight, mm. another day. This time I'm fighting with the oil company because I won't leave my house unlocked and they won't tell me what time they're coming. To deliver oil. What do you mean oil company? Like, what do you mean oil delivery? So my heat and hot water runs on oil. What? Wait, what? Yeah, I have an oil tank in my garage. <gasps> Wait a minute. Is that a thing? Yeah. Is it? Is it a thing up there? Yeah. Okay, I have... Am I stupid? I've never heard of this before. No, it's a, it's a thing in a lot of places. And usually there is a way for them to have like a plug or some kind of pipe that goes outside of your house so they can just kind of like connect and pump oil into your tank that way. But I don't have that. And I don't know how to get that. (laughs) And so I just have this huge oil tank in my garage. And I have to leave my garage open or they have to be able to access it through the garage. And I've missed the last two deliveries because I'm not home and it's I'm not leaving my house unlocked. And so the guy called me today and he was like, hey, so we've missed the last couple of deliveries. I said, yeah, I know I'm getting pretty low. I was going to call you today, actually. And he's like, well, you know, we've been servicing that house for like 40 years and, you know, the, the garage is always unlocked. And then I had to enter something I like to call, I mean, I guess you would call it bitch mode, but I refuse to call it that because <laughs> I don't think it's me being a bitch. I think it's me just being adamant and asserting myself. Yes. Advocating for yourself mode. Completely advocating for myself. And so I said, well, hi, my name's Danielle and I'm the new homeowner and I will not be leaving my garage unlocked for you. So <laughs> you can set an appointment with me like a normal person or give me a range of hours and a date that I should be available, and I will do that. But I'm not leaving my house unlocked, apparently, like the last owner did for 40 fucking years. (laughs) Wow. That is shocking how long that went on without incident. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, truly was basically, like, okay to leave me without heat and hot water because I don't want to leave my house unlocked. Like, I I don't think it's insane for me to want to lock my doors. And he acted like I told him... Well, the only way to access this house is through an invisible tunnel in the neighbor's yard that you have to army crawl through and use your wits to survive. Like, it is not a big ask to say, can you call me when you arrive or can you plan a day? Like, plan it. Just tell me we're going to be there on Wednesday between 8 and 5 p.m. (laughs) Okay, here's kind of what I'm I'm putting two and two together right now about this 
area of the world that you're living in right now. A lot of people think that they can just be real fast and loose with some shit up there. Yeah. And this is based on several things that you've told us as listeners, but also me as your friend mm-hmm. off, off mic. What's up with those people up there? And that's the thing. I'm like, am I supposed to be acclimating to like, well, this is just the way it's done? Or am I trying to flip the script and be like, I'm a new breed of motherfucker? Yeah. They don't know your pure survival mode. They just really don't. Thank you. I mean, bitch mode aside, your pure survival mode of where you have a very strong sense of (laughs) self-preservation and will take out anyone that is coming for you, no matter what the circumstance. I mean, if I hear my door, any door in my house opening without my knowledge of that event happening, without my preordained knowledge of that, I'm grabbing my bow. And I'm shooting someone with an arrow. <laughs> like, right. don't think you can just come up in my house. Like, why is that the norm? When I bought the house, the woman who sold it to me was like, oh, yeah. And I, she gave me one key for the front door and was like, oh, yeah, like, I, I haven't locked a door here in 25 years. And I'm like, well, congratulations for you, but I'm not that motherfucker. I lock my doors if I'm taking my garbage out. A hundred percent. And that should be okay, by the way. Yeah. I know that they're saying to you, but come on, it's just we're all friendly neighbors. Nobody would ever do anything, blah, blah, blah. That is like the last thing you hear before some serial killer (laughs) comes into the house and murders everybody. You know, the last sentence you say before that shit is, but, you know, I just left my door unlocked for the oil company because... Thank you. I just love everybody in this town and give them full range access to all my shit 24 (laughs) seven. Also, it's like, please recognize that my trust issues were born here. (laughs) Like this is the place where my trust issues were birthed. (laughs) You did this. You made me this. this I grew up with a woman who was like, don't go in the woods. There's murderers everywhere. And then we lived in the woods. So like, get over it. That's how I am. I know why I'm like this, but I'm not changing it. I'm not changing it. And I don't, I don't appreciate this man being like, well, your comfort level is an impediment to my desire to quickly do what you're to do this job. Look, first of all, This is the first time I've ever heard about somebody having oil delivered to their house regularly to heat it. (laughs) I've always had like electric or gas. I've never had an oil tanker all willy nilly in my house. Okay. But now thanks to the movie that you picked for this week, I'm thinking all kinds of shit about shit like this. Like, right. What if some rogue oil company person decided to place like a detonating device on the tanker <laughs> because of some international conspiracy. And I'm just saying that, like, in order for that to happen, you would have had to leave your garage unlocked. And you ain't doing that right. in 2022. The end. Thank you. Also, let's not forget that I've already had a pest control man try to move into my barn. <laughs> The chances of me coming home and finding someone in my garage are not impossible. (laughs) Unlikely, but not impossible. (laughs) Look, that pest control guy needs to go into town and spread the word about you. Right. That you are not having any of this malarkey. Okay. None of this like easy breezy. Come on in. 
Just chill out. Bring all your yeah. family members. Bring your girlfriend. Bring your fucking dad. Bring your family. Bring <laughs> a detonating device attached to a bomb. Build a fake wall and move in. <laughs> <laughs> Bring the fucking animals that you said that you would get out of here that you didn't get out of here. This is the other thing. It's like, I can't leave my garage unlocked. This place is crawling with animals that are like sharpening their knives, ready to move back in. Like I have kicked out every animal possible. Yeah. And they are just waiting for a cracked door or an open garage door to start setting up shop again. Like, dude. Look, when you were earlier, like talking about the scenario of digging a tunnel (laughs) to get the oil, I was like, too bad there's probably already a tunnel down there because of Chauncey and fam. Thank you. They probably did that tunnel already. Thank you. So y'all can come through here if you want. It's fine. Yeah, just find a hole in my yard and start spraying oil in because apparently it'll just go right under my house. (laughs) I'll have a reserve of oil (laughs) hanging out. Yeah, it really really made me angry that I'm like, wait, how am I the one made to feel like I'm doing the weird thing by locking my door? Also, they make no attempt to contact me. I'm here, man. Like, all you have to do is call. He's like, well, we came in, uh, we came on Saturday. And I'm like, well, then that's your own fault. Like, Monday through Friday, I'm available. Yes. Saturday and Sunday, take your chances. I have to go out and get coffee and sustenance and see my grandma. Like, yeah. take your chances, man. Look, I think this is a totally reasonable ask that you are not unfriendly or unneighborly. You are a black woman living alone in the woods. Thank you. Of course you want to lock your fucking doors. And they should respect that shit. Thank you. And work with you, like, as a normal thing. I mean... The normal standard operating procedure for people coming to the house is to set an appointment. Now, I'm not saying that they hit the time exactly every time, but they at least give you like a four-hour window where you can just be there, you know, and they will show up for the most part. Look, I've been so beaten down by this home that if you give me a window that's like, we will be there between 6 a.m. and midnight, I'll be like, cool, I'll make it work. (laughs) I'll stay home for 18 hours, no problem. Right. Like, I will do that. I'm very accommodating. Yes. But you can't just surprise me like, we bought a tanker truck and you weren't here. Like, that's just not who I am. I think it really just is, it's always astonishing to me when someone tries to invoke the, well, the last homeowner. Because I'm like, oh, well, let me introduce you to this motherfucker, the current homeowner. (laughs) (laughs) Have you met this bitch? Because... She is a whole new breed, and she talks about herself in the third person, and she locks her fucking doors, and she has a security system. So you can't just come pulling doors and windows open at her goddamn house anytime you want. I mean, listen, the more you talk about the previous homeowner, the more I'm like, who the hell? Like, (laughs) was she running, like, a hostel for general contractors in your town like what the fuck like people just coming in staying a while having a drum circle outside near the barn right (laughs) coming and going come on why do you think all these animals were living up in here (laughs) maybe the woman that owned the house before you was snow fucking white i don't know yeah it's entirely possible we only met for a very short time But it's entirely possible. Even with my contractors who are in my house for multiple hours a day every day, I wake up every morning before they get here and unlock the door. And there are days when they have to text or call me and be like, hey, we're outside. Because I'm not just going to leave my doors open all night so that I don't have to wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning. I'd rather wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning and let them in. Yeah, exactly. Look, these people need to get their acts together. 
They need to start acting profesh. Thank you. Start making appointments with people. Don't act all weirdly like I get 24-hour access to your <laughs> space. Whatever the fuck I want to, to do whatever the fuck I want to. I don't like it. You know what I'm going to do? I just thought of this. Here's, here's the solution. I will leave my garage door unlocked, and I'm going to park my grandma out there in her fucking wheelchair. <laughs> and when they open that door, she's going to be like, what the fuck do you think's going on? What the hell do you think's happening? She's going to have some of her zombie tools by her side. She's going to fucking pull a knife out of her chair. Yes. And they're going to be like, oh shit, we should have called. Because she's got a fucking 90-year-old black lady in the garage. <laughs> Hell yeah. Your house is going to be like the fucking house from Edward Scissorhands at the top of the hill. (laughs) Where all the neighborhood kids are like, yo, I heard there's this old lady that sits in the garage with zombie equipment. I can't wait. It's all I've ever wanted in life was to be the scary old lady in the neighborhood. <laughs> Let's get that shit rolling now. It comes for you whether you want it or not. Whether you want it, you might as well plan because it's coming for all of us. <laughs> what about you? How are you doing this week? I'll tell you. I'm happy to tell you. I got some work off my plate. Yes. Finding a little bit more free time. So you know what that means. I'm back on my shits. All my shits. All my shitty, shitty, shitty shows. Oh, yeah. Um, My fucking reality TV shows. I'm so excited to be not (laughs) doing anything smart. (laughs) I am like, wow. (laughs) You're like, I would like to turn this brain off all the way. Look, I was one of those people for a very long time that thought I was too intellectual for reality TV. <laughs> okay, I'm la- I am laughing because, yes, you are smart, but knowing <laughs> how much reality TV you watch right now, I cannot believe you would ever make that promise to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm saying for like a, a solid decade, I was like, <laughs> I'm too artistic and intellectual to be a fan of reality TV. It's all trash. I only watch Nova and (laughs) other high-minded programs. Thank God you came down to our level. (laughs) But here's, here's the secret thing about people who are snobs about watching reality TV is that the busier and more high-minded work you do, the more you want to watch that shit. Thank you. That's my opinion. I agree. And look, I'm not saying that only like secretly smart, awesome, intelligent people watch reality TV because there are idiots that watch reality TV as well. I think we know this, but there are idiots that make reality TV. (laughs) (laughs) I don't. And I also am not trying to call myself some like upper echelon, like elite. Okay. (laughs) I'm just saying that most of the time I spend in the world has to do with classic film (laughs) and i don't want to be in that space at all yeah like every night when i'm like clocking out of work at both you know my regular job and this podcast i'm like excited to just turn off like the rational brain like i'm just like i am so fucking ready to like binge watch all the Vanderpump Rules episodes I haven't seen, all the 90 Day Fiance universe that I haven't caught up with. It just gives me such joy yes. to like sit in my own filth. You know what I mean? <laughs> I completely agree with you. I remember a couple of months ago when I was like, 
man, I need some suggestions because when I rewatch shows of my own volition, I watch shows that terrify me or scare me or make me very, very sad. Right. And reality TV, say what you will about it, it has never made me depressed. It has never made me think about mortality. It has never brought me to the brink of any kind of negative reaction. It is pure joy for the hour that I'm watching it. <laughs> it's so true. And okay, correct me if I'm wrong, because we I don't know if we've actually talked about this yet, but when you started writing... Mm-hmm. You were writing recaps for Real Housewives, right? Yeah, I did recaps for Vulture for the Real Housewives of Atlanta. And believe it or not, I had to talk them into it because they it was one of the only franchises that they were not recapping. Uh-huh. And I'm like, it is the best of the franchise. You should be re- Somebody should be recapping this show. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, you should do it. And I was like, all right, I'll do it. But I, yeah, I recapped Real Housewives and I was a long time watch on cable the night it premiered Real Housewives fan. Yeah. And I watched all of the franchises and then I hit a wall when I stopped writing about it and when I started writing TV and I just didn't watch it. And I caught up on a lot of those franchises that I loved a few years ago and realized that because there was a point where I was like, man, I'm watching so many hours of TV every week of people just screaming at each other. Yeah. And that was bumming me out. But then they would like change the cast or change the storyline and I was back in. So I had to kind of like get out of my own head a little bit in order to just enjoy it and not see it as a job. But I went back in and then you got me on 90 Day Fiance. I've always (laughs) been on the Vanderpump train. Yeah. And that's we bonded over Vanderpump hardcore. But you got me on 90 Day Fiance and it is like it's doing something special. I don't know what that show is doing entirely, but it's really it really makes me it brings me joy. Yeah. (laughs) I will say that. Yeah. So yes, the two reality shows that I am kind of all in on, meaning I will follow it to the ends of the earth, no matter how bad it gets, or no matter how many dumb spinoffs <laughs> have happened. Like with 90 Day, I mean, I feel like we talked about this in a very early bonus episode. I think it was yes. probably our first bonus episode, where I kind of gave the overview of like, the cinematic universe of 90 Day Fiance, which yes. is far reaching at this point. There's been so many offshoots and so many like, and it's it's all kind of um, spun off this premise, which is two people are effectively meeting for a romantic thing, like a marriage or a relationship or something. And one lives in America and, and the other person lives in a foreign country. Right. That's the entire crux of the show. And then the entire universe is spun off of different variations on that theme. Mm-hmm. Right. So the more I think that they can't possibly come up with another <laughs> variation, they somehow do. And when I talk it out in my head, I'm like, this is fucking stupid. Why am I committing so much of my precious free time to this weird offshoot of an offshoot of an offshoot of a fucking reality show? But I just have to admit to myself finally that I don't care. Like I am, I am completely indoctrinated into this universe (laughs) and I will watch any person involved in this show pretty much do anything at this point. (laughs) And you kind of have to. Like, there are 
shows where you're like, this family cannot get more bonkers. And then they're like, guess what? We're doing a show with only this family. And you're like, well, I'm watching that shit because yes. I have to. You get into it. It's just like when I rewatched all the Marvel movies a few months ago. And I watched them in order because you can't just watch, I don't know, well, for me anyway, it's like, you know, you're watching Captain America, you're watching Ant-Man and like I watched Ant-Man and the Wasp finally because I just didn't understand what happened in the last Avengers movie. And I'm like, well, where'd this shit come from? Why is Evangeline Lilly here? Yeah. I had to go back and watch it to understand. Yeah. And 90 Day, there was one point I think where we were texting about 90 Day and I was like, wait, what? What are you talking about? And you're like, oh, it's 90 Day the Other Way. And I was like, what? And you're like, bitch, you better get on this shit. You better keep up. You got to watch 90 Day the Other Way. Which I think is actually better. Oh, completely. Than the original recipe and like the four other spinoffs that came from the original recipe. Girl, I watched some episode with some man. He was the meekest, mildest looking man from somewhere in the South. And I know if, if you watch the show at, at home, I know you're screaming the names of these people right now. <laughs> I don't remember. But this man... Looked like he was going to puke. He was in the like the wilds of, of Brazil or something like that. Oh, that's all of them. Yeah. And he confessed to this woman. He's like, look, um, I've got a record and it involves abuse and I burned down my girlfriend's house. And then he ran off into the jungle <laughs> and she got mugged by a man with a machete. You cannot make this shit up. <laughs> And that could easily be like four or five different dudes. Like, I, like in my mind, I'm going, "Oh, that could be cheesesteak. That could be um, you know, the other guy from North Carolina with those big Dobermans. Um, it could be literally anybody." That's how crazy the show has gotten. And here's the thing: like, again, if I repeated this at any point in a bonus episode, apologies. But right now, my biggest thing is watching this thing called Pillow Talk, which they have... Oh, yeah. Yeah. The (laughs) former subjects of other 90 Day Fiance shows watching the current show (laughs) that's on right now. And, of course, there's seven or eight at any given moment. And they're giving, like, their opinions on it. And I've called it my version of SportsCenter for the 90 Day (laughs) Fiance. It's like, just give me the highlights. Just give me the fucking highlights. Because I don't want to sit down and commit to, like, 90 minutes of a regular episode. Now I just want, like, you know, the news. I just want, like, the up... Just tell me what the pertinent information is. And... Give me Tim and Veronica, because they're my favorite, uh, former reality <laughs> show subjects that are now talking about other subjects. And that's that's all I need in life. And I- I'm telling you, dude, it's crazy how truly obsessed I've become. The only, <laughs> the only one I haven't seen is the one where they have former subjects reading their own social media. Oh, damn. It's like... What if we did an entire show where we just read like bad reviews of the show and then they have to come up with them some like sassy comeback like, "Uh uh-uh, girl, at least I'm not this and that. And then I'm like, I don't know. That just was too depressing, too fucking depressing for me. That is Twitter, the TV show, and we don't need it and we don't want it. We don't need it. And then, you know, taking a sharp turn is Vanderpump, (laughs) which... You and I have bonded on Vanderpump. Vanderpump Rules, if you haven't seen it. Yes. It is an offshoot of a Real Housewives show. Yep, Beverly Hills. (laughs) Beverly Hills. And there was a shakeup last year because essentially four people got fired from the show for being racist. Which was a long time coming. It was a long time coming. And I 
thought that would be the end. Like, I thought I was done. Like, I'm like, well, everybody's racist, so show has to end, right. right? There's no possible way this can go on. Oh, it's going on. And then you woke up and you're like, wait, I'm in America. Anything's possible. Any, anything is possible, baby. Vanderpump especially is a weird one because Lisa Vanderpump herself is not enough to hold my attention. Oh, yeah. And she tried some stuff in that last season, or maybe it was two seasons ago, where she was, like, ziplining over Las Vegas and going to the employee that she hates the most, going to their wedding. And I'm like, she's trying too hard to be part of the show. She doesn't need to do that. She can just have the restaurants and float in sometimes. But they tried to make her too much of a character. Absolutely. You know who she kind of reminds me of? I hate to say it. Remember the episode with Scotty Landis that we talked about the real-life inspiration for the movie that he wrote, which is called Ma. Yes. <laughs> that woman who comes to the party and is, like, yes. trying to fix drinks for the high school kids, that's Lisa Vanderpump to me, unfortunately. <laughs> Lisa Vanderpump is Ma. <laughs> now, if Lisa Vanderpump <laughs> decided to start murdering people, I would be so, so into the show. Like, in a way that is not possible. <laughs> Look, you're in the Hollywood business. Let me let me just spitball with you this idea, okay? What if we did a reality show where Lisa Vanderpump trained rescue dogs to kill beautiful, attractive servers that worked at her restaurants for trying to have sex with the Toms? Look, here's what we call it. The name of the show is You Get One, as in You Get One Kill. <laughs> per week <laughs> and the code word for murder for the dogs as soon as the dogs hear the word tom tom <laughs> they go for the jug it's like that kill bill music starts playing the dog's head and that dog goes fucking bonkers on a, like a 22 year old west hollywood resident 100 percent watching that show every week your grandma could be executive producer. Oh, naturally. I see it. I see all of this in front of me. My grandma and your mom will have to executive <laughs> produce. And it's going to be a hit. And as soon as those dogs hear Tom Tom, the sirens start going off. Their eyes turn into like those spinning saucers. And they just go for the jug. <laughs> well, we we should do this show while we're on the mic. Like while we're still yes. here. <laughs> Before we start spitballing reality TV shows, <laughs> we do have a great episode lined up. We certainly do. It's actually our third week of our Black History Month celebration here on the pod. And we have an absolutely incredible episode, in my opinion. I can't wait to tell you what the theme is. Do you want to tell him? Oh, hell yeah. So this week's theme is King Kong ain't got shit on him. <laughs> we are doing a week that is a Denzel Washington double feature. And what other theme would we have? Yes. Thank you once again to people who were doing some high-minded shit. <laughs> I, we appreciate that. We, we salute you. But you know what? 
King Kong ain't got shit on him. We are doing a week of Denzel Washington movies, yes. We certainly are. We appreciate the altruism as always. We know that right now you are crumpling paper and throwing it across the room because you have spitballed (laughs) several good ideas on social media and it is not the case. It's like when we do an episode and we're like, guess the theme and you're like, is is the theme about um, the intrinsic value of human life and how you measure the... (laughs) beating of a human heart in terms of love. And we're like, no, it's just about who we're horny for. Yes. This is one of those weeks. We hate to disappoint. Hate to disappoint, but here we are. King Kong ain't got shit on him. Well, and we take that phrase from one of Denzel's famous films. I would say one of his most famous films, Training Day, Mm -hmm. which we're not featuring this week. But I wanted to ask you just to kick things off, because of course, like we're doing Black History Month We are trying to show the sort of diversity amongst Black artists, Black performers. And, you know, we started the first episode off with somebody who we felt was very underserved, needed more attention, kind of a very, like, niche director, Menelik Shabazz, who more people should know about. But then we decided to move to Denzel this week, who is arguably one of the most famous Black actors directors, performers of all time. And I wanted to ask you, like, so growing up, did you know Denzel? Were you watching his films? Like, what was his, what was the opinion of him in your house? Oh, completely. Let me, let me put it this way. I thought for years that the man's name was pronounced Denzel! Because <laughs> there wasn't... Anytime he appeared on a screen, that is what everyone in my home shouted. Ah, oh, Denzel! <laughs> Like, revered in my home. Revered in most Black homes. Yeah. He is one of those actors that no matter what he is doing, you know you are going to see something great, and his greatness is just compounded with time. So he started out as a TV actor. You know, he was on St. Elsewhere, and he also did a lot of Broadway and off-Broadway. Like, he's a trained actor in many different disciplines. Mm -hmm. But he is one of the foremost and most formidable actors in Hollywood, period. He's 66 years old, which is wild because he's been acting for about 150 years. Right. (laughs) Like, I feel like he has been part of our lives for all of our lives. Yeah. And he picks these roles and he can fluctuate between doing something that's like, you know, like he'll do Glory, which is a Civil War drama. And then he'll kind of do Shakespeare. Like he did Kenneth Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing. You know, he can do Philadelphia, which he did with Tom Hanks. And he'll do The Pelican Brief, which is kind of like a crime novel. He plays real life characters like Malcolm X. He plays roles to the point where he inhabits them so fully that he doesn't need prosthetics. He doesn't need anything other than his own countenance to fully inhabit a character and make you believe this is the who the character is. He is an unbelievable actor, in my opinion, in many people's opinions. He's very well rewarded and awarded. Uh, he's won Academy Awards. He's won Screen Actors Guild Awards, Golden Globes. He's an astonishing presence. And if you have some time, there are many videos on YouTube of him just walking, which doesn't seem like it would be a big deal. He has the world's coolest walk. (laughs) And there's even a video that explains how he got the walk. But he just has 
such a presence to him. And he does these movies like Man on Fire or, I mean, the list goes on and on. But he can change the way that you see a character just simply by whatever approach it is that he has taken to the character. And that, to me, is true skill. Yeah. And I think that he is revered in exactly the right kind of way because he seems like he's also kind of a cool guy. Um, He's been the spokesman for the Boys and Girls Club since 1993 because it had a huge impact on his life when he was a kid. And he never forgot that. And so he just always supports the things that are important to him. He is very religious. And he, at one point, uh, I read some interview where he was like, at one point he thought he was going to be a preacher, which kind of explains also some of his delivery and some of his roles. Yes. Because the way that he talks and the way that he like delivers lines is it's very powerful and it's incredibly charismatic and it kind of has you know a lot of preachers do have that element of theatricality to them (laughs) and it makes perfect to me it's a perfect makes perfect sense it's a direct correlation between his desire to possibly have been a preacher one day or could be still one day and his delivery as an actor and he's also he's been married to his wife Pauletta for almost 40 years wow and Their relationship is so strong. There's not a single award the man has ever received where he hasn't thanked her profusely. They have four kids. And his son, John David Washington, is also an actor. And he was in Black Klansman and um, Tenant. And I was reading about Black Klansman, and I didn't know that he was Denzel Washington's son until after I saw the film. Wow. And he was so captivating in that role that I'm like, who is this kid? Where did he come from? And I was reading this interview with him, and the interviewer kept saying, you know, well, your father, your father, your father. And John David Washington stopped him and said, actually, also my mother. Like, she also raised me to be this person. And the fact that they both love her so much yeah. just speaks, vol- I don't know, it just do- it does something to me. It just speaks to me about just the val- what he places value on as an actor and what he places value on in his real life seems to have translated well to them raising these incredible kids. And, you know, him loving his wife as much as he does seems to have translated to him having a good foundation for making these big career moves and having the support that he needed to to be the actor that we see today. There's so much information about him out there. He has so many honorary doctorates. He loves to donate to acting programs and English departments. Like he really walks it like he talks it. And I just I just think he's incredible. And I think the movies that we chose today show a nice range of who he is. You might be thinking, why didn't you pick this one or why didn't you pick that one? We might in the future, you don't know. <laughs> but for today, we chose these two because of Denzel. <laughs> Couldn't have said it any better. And you have your own experience with Denzel. Oh, God. I hope you want to express on this podcast. Let me just scuzz up this tribute (laughs) right now. The great dramatic actor Denzel Washington. I'm just going to follow everything that you said so eloquently up with sheer trash. So I went (laughs) to, oh my God, I'm like doing a side of the cross before I say any of this. (laughs) She's sweating. She's sweating. I'm sweating. So I, uh, I went to the AFI tribute for Denzel Washington like a couple years ago. It was the first time I'd ever gone to the Kodak theater in Hollywood, you know, where they have the Oscars and stuff. And it was this like huge thing. I had to dress up fancy, you know, it's like, it was, it was kind of a big deal. And, 
don't get it twisted. I was not in the bottom. I was in the top. I was like in the balcony with everybody's assistant and like I was a nobody, but I still had to get dressed up. Okay. And the person that one of the people that I was with offered me an edible. Okay. (laughs) Like, okay. At some point during the ceremony at the very beginning. And of course I said yes, because I was like, do I need to be stoned for the AFI tribute to Denzel Washington? I guess we're going to see. Let's see what happens. Wait, I love the sentence. At some point during the ceremony, at the beginning, like, no one has said a word, and your friend is like, let's eat these edibles. Oh, God. Very cloudy evening I had, but... (laughs) I decided to take an edible and without getting too much into my history with edibles, I don't do them anymore because (laughs) of this, because of this situation and other situations I had had prior, but this one really was the nail in the coffin for me to ever fuck with edibles ever again. So I'm like in my fancy clothes in the balcony at the Kodak theater. And there is literal famous Hollywood (laughs) people like Julia Roberts is down there Chadwick Boseman was down there. This was when Chadwick Boseman was alive. R.P. King. Rest in peace, King forever. Pauletta and those kids were down there. Like, literally, his entire family. The twins? The twins were there. The twins were there. Everybody that was famous and awesome in Hollywood was in the theater. And I'm just this goon in a stupid dress from Mod Cloth, I guess. And I was slowly unraveling because I just can't get edibles right. And every time I have them, I'm like completely losing my shit to the point where I'm like calling my friends being like, you have to come over. I swear to God, I'm going to jump off the building, which is exactly what happened, which I was like, I turned to my friend at some point and I was feeling so crazy and fucked up that I was like, I feel like I'm going to jump off the balcony. And my friend's like, what? And I'm like, dude, I don't know what's going on, man. You're having a true reefer madness moment. Oh my God, it was psychotic. And I just felt like I like you're watching like all these like extremely famous people like give him all of the accolades he deserves. And he's like very grateful. They're showing his face like close up on the screen and he's like, tearing up he's very moved by everything that's going on yeah i watched it i remember (laughs) yeah i'm upstairs like sweating and being like dude dude whispering to my stupid friend dude i gotta get the fuck out of here man i'm fucked up i can't be here look what a way to go (laughs) if you're gonna stop eating edibles what a way to go with the steely grin of Denzel Washington making you feel like you are fucking up his special night. Listen, thank you, Denzel Washington, for getting me off of edibles, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I salute you. Thank you for helping me kick that. You, you are beloved by many, including the two of us. And honestly, I can't wait to get into these movies because I saw your movie for the very first time. It was a first watch. <gasps> and you know how it is. Danielle's first watch. Stressful. <laughs> Life ruining, (laughs) family crushing. (laughs) Oh, well, let's definitely get into this. And you are first this week, so knock us out. Okay, let's get started. My movie for the theme of King Kong, Hate Got Shit on Him, is a movie from 1995. It was written and directed by Carl Franklin, and it's called Devil in a Blue Dress. 
So here you need a job. What kind of work you do? I'm just looking for somebody. Daphne Monet. Fiance of Todd Carter. She's been gone two weeks. See, Daphne has a predilection for the company of Negroes. He thought he knew how to play the game. Any of y'all seen a white girl by the name of Dahlia? Delia, something like that? Her name is Daphne. You can't get none of that tonight. So, um, yeah, this movie, I, I just wanted to briefly mention Carl Franklin, who wrote and directed this movie, because I actually feel like he could probably have his own episode for Black History Month. Yeah. He started his career as an actor in the 1970s. He went to UC Berkeley to study theater and then went to New York, where he started acting in many beloved films and TV shows. Too many to mention. But then at age 37, he decided that he wanted to be a director. So he went back to school and he got a master's at the AFI Conservatory, as we talked about just a moment ago. But after graduating, Carl Franklin went to work for Roger Corman, as you do. Everybody has to have their turn with learning how to make cheap movies with Roger Corman. (laughs) (laughs) But then his sort of breakout film came in 1992, this movie called One False Move, which is also a neo-noir, strangely enough, but that one starred Billy Bob Thornton and Bill Paxton. And it's really a great film. Mm -hmm. I urge you to check it out if you haven't. But a few years after that came this movie, Devil in a Blue Dress, and it was because Carl Franklin was a fan of this series of mystery books that were written by the famous author, Walter Mosley, who, again, could probably have an episode during Black History Month as well. Mm -hmm. It was a series that revolved around the character of Easy Rollins, who was a black private detective living in the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles, around the end of the Second World War, and was really inspired by that kind of hard-boiled fiction of, like, Raymond Chandler and people like that. But right off the bat, I love that this film is inspired by, directed by, and acted by Black artists and performers. I think that's really cool. And Denzel was already super famous and successful by the time this movie came out in 1995. But what I think is interesting is that this film, when it came out, was considered a box office failure. And for me, I think it's become one of these movies where I just sit and think, I can't believe this movie wasn't more than that. Like, I just... It's puzzling to me because I'm like, why did this movie not become L.A. Confidential? That is it exactly. That was exactly what I thought when I saw it. Even, like, recently, of course, like, watching it for the show. But when I first saw it, I'm like, this is, like, a noir movie in the vein of the L.A. Confidentials and so many others. And how was it so overlooked? Totally. And even on top of that, like, we're such in the age of, like, franchises and intellectual property now that maybe that's informing sort of my thoughts on this. But I'm like, Mm -hmm. why didn't Easy Rollins become the big franchise character like Philip Marlowe, like the Raymond Chandler guy who had many movies and many IPs about him. So I'm kind of like, it just really puzzled me. Mm -hmm. And then I started really thinking about it and I was like, oh, there's probably lots of reasons for this because one of the biggest ones is that Devil in a Blue Dress is a period piece. And 
As we know, Hollywood just simply does not know how to make or deal with films that aren't being made expressly for teenagers. Yes. You know, we're always complaining about now how there seems to be like no adult films. Like, no, like what I mean, mm-hmm. adult films, I don't mean porn. I'm talking about <laughs> movies for grown-ups, you know, that aren't tied to, like, comic books or something like that. There's no, like, right. you know, movies for middle-aged people, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah. And so there's a moment where I thought, oh, nobody wants to see a, a period piece. Like, that's not popular for teenage boys, certainly. Yep. But another big reason, and this is something that we talk about a lot on this podcast, is that Hollywood just doesn't know how to deal with films about the Black experience and starring Black people. Mm-hmm. And... Even if in this film you have black people operating within the conventions of a mostly white genre traditionally, Mm -hmm. like film noir, but there's this great article that I read when I was doing research for this um, episode that was written by a writer named Scott Mendelson, and it was in Forbes magazine last year about why Devil in a Blue Dress didn't become this big hit when it came out. And he actually believes a big part of it had to do with the idea that, yes, Denzel Washington was as big of a star as you could have imagined in 1995, but at the same time, he was not allowed to carry a film by himself without a famous white co-star. That's right. Right? Mm-hmm. And listen, I mean, I know Jennifer Beals is technically the female lead in this film, but she was not even near the level of famous that he was at this time. And she's also half black. So it's kind of like, okay. It's almost like Hollywood was like, oh, we can pair you with a white, a famous white person and it's okay. But if this right. is your entire show, how do we figure this out? And the writer of the article, Scott Mendelson, he makes this kind of fascinating observation, which is that. Devil in a Blue Dress came out the week that the David Fincher movie Seven came out, (gasps) which is also a mystery film, right? A lot of twists and turns in that one. But it does star a famous black actor alongside a famous white actor. Yes. And actually two, if you want to count Gwyneth Paltrow. Right. And it was, weirdly enough, the seventh highest grossing film of the year and was nominated for an Academy Award. It's kind of like you've got two like noirish films that are being released within a week of each other. And these like little variables make one film kind of not bankable and not a box office success. And the other one is a wild success. Do you know what I mean? Exactly, exactly. And that is something that when I was researching, you know, for my film and researching Denzel in general, that I didn't realize either is that his his ability to carry a film on his own was always present. Like he he could have carried a film on his own much earlier than he actually did. Right. And that was all politics. Right. It's all politics behind the scenes. And it was weird for me to realize that because I'm like, no, he's been a leading man for a long time. And then when I looked at the films, I'm like, yep, here he is with Tom Hanks and here he is with this person and here he is with that person. And it wasn't really until like Malcolm X right. and that film in particular, but like he showed that he could carry it. And that was, again, another film about a very important and prominent figure in our history, in Black history and in all history. And if you don't know about Malcolm X, you should read about him because I guarantee that what you've learned about him is not the full story and it is not nearly as fascinating as he was as a person. And they fought to get that film made. Right. You know, it's like every film is a fight, even if you're Denzel fucking Washington. Right. It's almost like if you're not like this incredibly famous historical figure, then, you know, we're going to have to parry with some 
white bankable star. Not to say that Denzel wasn't bankable because at the time, I mean, he had made so many big movies in a row. I mean, Philadelphia was right before this film. Yeah. But it is that weird Hollywood thing of like, okay, well then what happened here? Because this is such a great film. I mean, really is a great film. And I will definitely get into like my reasons for loving it in just a second. But just to give you a, I mean, there's a lot to chew on, obviously, with all of that, but I would love to give you like a one sentence synopsis of the film. (laughs) I'm smiling because this film is so intricate. Yes, I I mean, I'm just going to say, this might appear to be shockingly simplistic, but I think it actually covers the entire film. Here it goes. A black World War II veteran living in Los Angeles just wants to own his own home in peace, but is laid off one day and therefore forced to accept an extremely sketchy job working for a bunch of racists in order to afford his mortgage. I mean, I don't think that's simplistic at all. Okay. So Denzel plays the lead character who is, like I said, his full name is Ezekiel Easy for short. Rollins. And he is in this film, he's he's one of the only people in his neighborhood who owns his own home. Okay. Like I said, this takes place in 1948. I actually think that this is one of the more fascinating points of this movie. Mm-hmm. And it's talked about, but you know, it's kind of brief, right? It's almost like if you blink, you miss it. But 1948, obviously the post-World War II era where a lot of servicemen were coming home, wanting to buy homes and starting the benefits that they had earned with the GI Bill for their service, right? Yep. But, of course, black servicemen typically got the shaft when it came to getting those benefits, right? That they'd earned, they earned them by being in a war. And wouldn't you know, they had a much harder time getting home loans, getting jobs, getting to college. I mean, I think, go look up the history of redlining if you haven't done so already. Yes. So... The idea that Easy was a veteran and actually did own his own home and had an enormous sense of pride about that is actually, to me, the most important part of this movie. I completely agree. And it's wild and wonderful to watch these scenes where he's like, I just want to pay my mortgage and eat. Yeah. Like his goals are so simple and so and should be so attainable. Yeah. And he left this war and came back to a country that was still very racist. So the system was always working against him. And the fact that they don't even show how he got the home, that could have been its own movie. Yeah. Like showing how he got a home, a home loan and a mortgage in this this kind of, you know, this cultural stew. So I think that it's really, it is important. And every time they mention it, it punctuates a deeper point about what was going on in society in that moment. Definitely. And, you know, Easy at the beginning of this film is laid off from his job by his white boss and he's behind on the bills. And so he accepts this sort of under the table gig from this guy named Mr. Albright, who is a private detective played by Tom Sizemore in another stone cold psycho role, as you can imagine. The man is a character actor. (laughs) We might not be able to to say that about him across the board. He loves to play an unhinged cop. Yes. Just like a dirty fucking crooked <laughs> cop or detective. It's just crazy. And Mr. Albright makes easy this offer that he can't refuse, which is he just tells him, I'm going to give you money if you can locate this woman named Daphne Monet. And Mr. Albright sort of tells him, hey, I would actually try to find her myself, but... 
Daphne, who is played by Jennifer Beals, like I think I said earlier, who is very Stanwick in this film, by the way. She's just the classic, beautiful femme fatale. Mm -hmm. Daphne likes to hang out with black people and likes to hang out in black clubs, despite the fact that she's dating this very important white guy running for mayor of Los Angeles, okay? And the problem is, is that the guy that she's dating is running against this other guy who also might be a child pornographer. And maybe Daphne has proof that he is. And maybe that's why she's missing. And Albright needs easy to find her. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the crux of the story, really. And after this, Easy is hired to basically go into the black community to start asking around about Daphne. And as we say a lot on this podcast, all hell simply breaks loose from here. Truly. <laughs> okay. And remember, Easy just wants to pay his damn bills. <laughs> And keep his house. And look, you tell me, I'll give you this money. All you have to do is find someone. Like, you don't have to talk to them. You don't have to drive them anywhere. You just have to find them and tell me where they are. I would take the job. Yes. It sounds easy. It sounds easy. It sounds easy, but you know it ain't. <laughs> it's just bad. Like, people are showing up dead. Okay, the asshole LAPD are on his tail as they are. This Mr. Albright character... Truly one of the shittiest racists to ever live, and also just completely unhinged at all moments. Truly. Albright's got Easy by the balls, and Easy essentially is feeling the weight of this decision that he's made to accept this money from this, like, fucked up scenario, right? And he essentially has no recourse but to start taking matters into his own hands, <laughs> which includes calling up his old buddy from Houston, Mouse, who has played... Epically by Don Cheadle. I mean, again, why can't we get a franchise just about Mouse Alexander? <laughs> there is a scene in a kitchen where they've been drinking to try to get some information out of somebody. And the Easy Rollins character goes to roust Mouse out of the kitchen to kind of get him moving. And Mouse just starts pulling guns on him. <laughs> like, drunk <laughs> off his mind. Just wakes up drunk, starts pulling guns. It is the most tense and simultaneously the most hilarious scene yes. I have possibly seen. Mouse will literally kill anyone at any time. <laughs> He's just that person. He's just basically like, whatever you need, I'll kill this guy. I know you don't even want me to kill him, but I, I'll just do it. Strong survival instinct. Strong Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes, very strong survival instinct, just like the co-host of the podcast, I Saw What He Did. <laughs> but Don Cheadle got so much, he stole the show. I mean, he got so much attention from this character of Mouse, and he's great. He is one of the best parts of this film. Yes. But essentially, Easy has to link up with Mouse because, honestly, he, he needs this edge. He's in a white, rich person's mess, and... He has to get himself out of it. And this is, I think, part of the noir element to the film, which is that the subject of noirs, usually the lead character of a noir is either like a detective. Mm -hmm. And Easy Rollins is not a detective, by the way. He, he is a total normal person that gets put into the detective role. Yes. That's, I think, a little bit of the variation on the neo-noir or the noir film. But the conventions of noir that the world that this person's in, the character's in, is 
fucked up. And part of what I think is great about noir film is that it's able to like use that as a platform to discuss the bullshit of you know, the world, the society, the ills of society, like whatever kind of political statement you need to make can happen within that narrative structure. But it's what easy is. I mean, he's basically the, the lead character in a noir film without being the like private eye. Yes. Really. But he's definitely put in that role and he gets put into this ginormous mess. And you know, that is the film. And I, and as much as like, I, I would love to continue going down this road and explaining the plot. I just feel like it gets convoluted, but then it's giving too much away. Yeah. And this is a film that I want everybody to see. So, you know, you just have to know that it gets really good and intense. And, you know, part of what, though, is so special about this film, I think it is very much a in that classic film noir of the 40s tradition. Like, I think I talked about this when we did the episode with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I think mm-hmm. that was the one where I talked about this. But I love LA-focused noir films. Like, yeah. the whole kind of Raymond Chandler-inspired um, cinematic universe. But, um, <laughs> you know, in Devil in a Blue Dress, there's obviously just, like, big hints of, like, I see Chinatown in this movie. I mean, it's very similar to, like, The Big Sleep and Kiss Me Deadly, just kind of these famous classic noir films of the, you know, classic Hollywood era. And honestly, Denzel, he goes absolutely toe-to-toe with any of these famous men, like Bogart, Mitchum, Richard Widmark, whomever. Like, Denzel goes toe-to-toe with all of them. He's so great. Completely and agree. like I said in the beginning, I'm, I'm just baffled as to why this movie wasn't bigger. I mean, to me, it's very complex, and it's, it, it's a very interesting mystery. It's got a great period feel, like just everything, the outfits, the hair, the sets. And most importantly, I think it discusses a lot about race and racism on a lot of different fronts. Like it, it, it kind of comes at it from a lot of different angles. Mm-hmm. And I think placing that within the framework of a neo-noir is just really smart. I think that's a very smart way to talk about it. And I don't know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what happened in 95 with this film, but justice for devil in a blue dress all day. I love this movie and I would be remiss. I mean, just to bring it back to Hornyville. <laughs> For a brief moment, for my money, I'm not sure if Denzel has ever been hotter. Maybe, maybe Mo Better Blues, but honestly, he he couldn't have been hotter to me. I mean, to be fair, he spends 95% of the movie in a white tank top. That's true. (laughs) He showed off the arms, but I just would be remiss if I didn't just mention that, but look, I think at the end of the day, such a great film. He is so great in it criminally underrated yeah but honestly i think now that we i think as film culture is starting to re-examine a lot of 90s films you know because they're they're moving into classic film territory people whether you like it or not age is a bitch how dare you (laughs) i know i know but i honestly think that it's good because i think that maybe this film will finally get the appreciation that i think it deserves and yeah just a great film for me i love it I'm so glad that you picked it. I'm glad that you're part of helping this movie find its audience. I think it's it's a great examination of just who Denzel is as an actor. Yeah. And I think that you're right, that it, it says so much about, there's so much happening in this film that could make, you could make a direct correlation to what's happening in current society. And it kind of explains Definitely. the foundations of a lot of that racist history. Um, yeah. But I think what also, you know, something I love about this movie, and again, another reason I'm so glad you picked it, is that to me, the centerpiece of his acting is that he never lets you forget about blackness 
and he still can tell a story. So it's not – even stories that are not about him specifically being black, he's able to remind you that his presence in a film is saying something about blackness. And I just think it's a real skill that he has to really sharpen the the knife edge of that. And he walks a fine line, but he's not afraid to tell these stories and to be part of telling these stories that are incredibly important. And I'm just so glad you picked this movie. Well, thanks. It was uh, a joy to rewatch it again. I've seen it several times, but every time I watch it, I feel a new thing. So Yay. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Oh, my God. Your movie. Ah, OK. Let's just we're, we'll get into it again. No segue needed. <laughs> we're doing it. We're here. My choice for the theme of King Kong ain't got shit on him was released in 2006. It was written by Russell Gewertz and directed by Spike Lee. And my movie is Inside Man. You're the hostage negotiator? That's right, Detective Frazier. This is Detective Mitchell. What do you got? Put on one of these suits and these masks. We gotta step back and look at this thing from a distance. Things are not all they appear to be. Okay, so much to say about this film. I've wanted to talk about this on the podcast since we started the podcast. Oh, I know. I know you have. I I remember. I've tried to shoehorn this in in so many different ways, but I feel like this is the perfect theme to do it for several reasons, but one being that this is a later day, Denzel. This is, again, released in 2006. So you're seeing a more mature Denzel, you know, a more, um, a beefier Denzel. (laughs) Mm. But you're seeing someone in this film, to me, who's able to take everything he's learned in his incredible career of acting and still create something incredibly fresh and new. And I love watching this movie. It has been a favorite of mine for a very long time since it came out, essentially. And I return to it constantly. Yeah. I cannot tell you how many times I've seen this movie. Over 15. I will say over 15 times. Wow. Amazing. And it's just one of those movies that like once I think about it, once it's in my head, I have to watch it. Like I have to I have to play it out. I have to play it through. Yeah. A brief synopsis before we really start getting into this movie. One sentence synopsis. A shady detective matches wits with a flawless bank robber in a New York-centric heist, and also Willem Dafoe is there. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) Thank God. And I say that because the primary actors in this film are so intensely good that I sometimes forget it also stars Christopher Plummer, Jodie Foster, and Willem Dafoe. That is how good this movie is. I know. It's like they really stacked it in this film. And like I was reading articles about it and it was essentially like everybody, everybody wanted to work with Spike Lee. Like they were just like, I want to work with Spike Lee. Okay. Another famous person. You want to work with Spike Lee? You want to work with Spike? I mean, that was Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe was like, hey, I want to want to make a Spike Lee movie in New York. So here's my shot. So this is what I'll do. I'll play this police captain. And he... (laughs) <laughs> I'll be billed 12th. I don't give a shit. He doesn't give a shit. I just want to be in it. Everyone was like, I will work for $2 a day <laughs> and a slice of pizza. <laughs> I mean, that is a whole other show to talk about Spike Lee and his impact yeah. in the world of film. Truly. To work with him means you're working with someone who has something to say and will showcase it in a very specific and beautiful way. So I don't blame any of this cast yes. for, for wanting to work with him. And it also stars a young Chuetel 
Elgifor as oh. Denzel's partner, Bill Mitchells, Detective Bill Mitchell. So this movie is incredible. I absolutely love it. I will say that there are two things about this movie that astonish me. Every time I watch it, it's still astonishing to me. One being that the main characters in this film do not interact for almost an hour. So the film stars Clive Owen as Dalton Russell, who is the bank robber, uh, and Denzel Washington as Detective Keith Frazier. He's a hostage negotiator, and they don't interact for an hour. Like, they don't meet, they don't talk, they, nothing. So the whole setup of this film, the whole premise of this film is crafted in a way that is, at the same time, split. Like, they, they are split from each other. We're, we're, here, we're watching two completely different stories. Mm-hmm. And then we're also watching how they overlap and interlace. It's just, it's very masterful. I think the script is incredibly good. Yeah. And then the other thing that astonishes me about this movie is, in a similar vein, is that Spike Lee had... The absolute nerve to take one of the world's most attractive men, Clive Owen, and put him in a mask for 54 fucking minutes. You don't even see Clive Owen's goddamn beautiful face for 54 fucking minutes. You see him in the beginning? That's power, baby. That's power. <laughs> that is power. That is Clive Owen reading a script and being like, you don't see me for an hour? I still want to work with Spike Lee. Solid. <laughs> Solid. I'll do it. You see him in the beginning. He he very intricately, again, like one of the things that I that I also love about this movie is that it opens with Dalton Russell telling you every single thing about the heist, including his plan to walk out of the front door. But you don't know how. That is the thing that he leaves hanging, is the how. And that's what you're watching as the movie unfolds, is how does this flawless bank heist happen. So it's kind of, again, in a similar vein to a lot of heist films, where you see it from the moment of impact, you know, where they enter the bank, lock it down, do their thing. But it's much more complicated than that. (laughs) Much more complicated. And then the other thing that you see is that, like, as you're watching the movie, you're watching Denzel and Shawetal Eljafor, these two detectives, interview hostages who were in the bank. And you very slowly start to realize that every hostage is also a suspect. So the movie starts to explain how that happens as well. So before I get into this in depth, I just want to know, what were your thoughts about seeing this movie for the first time? Now, it's a little shameful for me to admit that this, I mean, I'm a big fan of Spike Lee, but I just, I I never watched this film for whatever reason. And Again, here we go. Another movie from the 2000s that Danielle has made me watch. Thank God, because it honestly, I don't know what happened to me in the aughts. I must have just. You were on edibles. I don't know if I was doing too many edibles. I don't know what's going on, but I just missed a lot of films that came out in the aughts. And I'm so thankful that you're here to remind me of them. But this movie was fucking stressful as shit. It was like a timpano of stress of uh, bank heist details. Let's just say that. Right? It really is. (laughs) But it's kind of amazing at the same time because you're just sort of like, I love a bank heist film. You know, I was reading also that like Spike Lee is a big fan of Dog Day Afternoon, which is like one of the most classic bank heist films of all time. And I have several favorites and that's one of them too. But the whole thing of it being like, 
It starts out kind of like a typical bank heist. I mean, it starts out like set it off where they just enter the building and they're like, everybody get on the floor. And then the more it continues, it's just this kind of like slow burn of like details of what they're making the people do. And the whole fucking plan of making everybody wear their outfits so then and they switch them around. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, oh, hell no. They are fucking going there with this shit. And it just created this sense of panic of like, well, then how the fuck are like Denzel and everybody going to figure out <laughs> who did it? Everyone is guilt. Like there's like 30 people in this bank and how are they going to know? And I, so to me it was perfect. Like if the movie's function was to keep me on the edge of my seat, that did it. It did uh. it perfectly. I am so glad to hear that because I feel the same way every time I watch it and I know exactly what happens. Yeah. It is so cool to see it unfold. Yes. And I, it, it's a joy of a movie. It's stressful, yes, but it is a joy of a movie for that reason. And I think part of it, too, for me is in all of the different characters that they are introducing in the film. So it's not just about the bank robbers. It's not just about the detectives. There's a whole world that's being created here. And so Denzel is so again he's so wonderful in this role and he's got this maturity and he's got this denzelness about him but it's a little bit crooked like he's kind of flipped on his on his side a little bit yeah. because he's playing a detective who is a little bit shady but the thing again that i love about this script is you know exactly who he is within 15 seconds of his character speaking for the first time right. and i think that denzel is just he is smooth he is fast talking he is at the top of his fucking game in this movie and so within the first 15 seconds of the story you know that he's divorced that he's under investigation because his, the last job he worked money had gone missing and he was being investigated for possibly having stolen it you know that he's a hostage negotiator, that he has a girlfriend that wants to get married. Like, you just are front-loaded with information about him. And so as you're watching him make decisions in this movie, you're already aware of why he's doing it, or you're aware of what his possible reasons for making these decisions are. Right. And I just love that. I think that he played that to a T. And again, you also have Christopher Plummer, who plays Mr. Case, who owns the bank. Mm. And when you first see Christopher Plummer, and he's like gray and stately and hot as shit standing next to this window, and you realize <laughs> that his... Look, you know I like him craggy. You know I like him old. We love a craggy old <laughs> Christopher Plummer. You can keep a goddamn sound of music, Christopher Plummer. <laughs> I will take the Christopher Plummer who used Nazi blood money to start a bank. Because <laughs> that is the secret that this character is trying to keep. So when the bank is locked down, he calls in this hired gun. He calls in this fixer, Madeline White, who's played by Jodie Foster, because he's like, look, I have a safety deposit box there and I don't want what's inside to get out. And what you learn pretty quickly is that it's not jewels, it's not money, it's that when he was a younger man, he traded on his capital to use money from the Nazis to get rich. And he sold out friends, and he sold out neighbors, and he did what he could, and he took that money and started a bank in New York and is, like, one of the richest men in the city. And as the movie unfolds, you see him – Mr. Case kind of makes a big deal out of being a good Samaritan, and it's kind of like uh, his penance – for this horrible deed he did. So you get this sense that he's been living with guilt for a while. But then as the movie unfolds, you realize maybe that's not the case. 
Mm-hmm. So it's a very complicated character that you see in such a limited way. But I really love that it's not overwrought. They don't kind of use him in a way that's very overwrought. Yeah. Instead, what they do is they send in Jodie Foster. And Jodie Foster, there's a scene with her and the mayor of New York where she's trying to wheel and deal and get her way to this crisis, this hostage scene at the bank. And they're kind of talking all nice and friendly in front of people. And the minute they get in his office and the door closes, he calls her a magnificent cunt. <laughs> and she's like, thank you. And she has this like shit-eating grin throughout the whole fucking movie because she knows exactly who she is and exactly what she does. And this is the kind of character who helped Osama bin Laden's nephew buy a penthouse in New York City. Like, this is who they send in to smooth that shit over. Ooh. So she interacts with <laughs> with Frasier, you know, the Denzel character a little bit. But the other characters that I think really round this out in such a vibrant way are the customers at the bank. Yeah. And we have a woman talking on her cell phone about how she wants to use her boss's credit card to plan an anniversary dinner for herself. A father and his son who's playing a video game. We see this kind of like slice of New York life in these characters. And the thing I absolutely fucking love about this particular section of characters is that absolutely everyone has an attitude. People are disagreeing with the gunman. They're like, I am not taking my clothes off. I am not getting on the floor. They're refusing <laughs> orders. They are yelling at the cops. There's a scene where there's a, some dialogue coming through from the bank and they play it over the loudspeakers because they don't know what language it's in. And this construction worker comes in and he's like, it's 100% Albanian. And they're like, so you speak Albanian? And he's like, no, my ex-wife and her family are all Albanian. <laughs> I can tell you for a fact it's Albanian. And he's getting an attitude with them where they're like, can you just stay here? And he's like, not this shit again. <laughs> like, the thing that I love about it is, and Spike Lee is very good at this, it's these little New York slice of life moments that are very real. Like when the bank is first infiltrated, there's this plume of smoke that comes out because they set off these smoke bombs. And there's this plume of smoke that comes out of the front doors and this guy walks by and he kind of grabs a cop and he's like, hey, I think something's happening in that bank. And then he just keeps walking, which is like (laughs) so New York to me. (laughs) Where he's like, "Uh, you might want to deal with that. I have watched people walk by buildings on fire. I myself have walked by buildings that had water cascades out of the windows. Like, you just do not have time to stop in New York to get involved in anything. <laughs> right. No, and this that's part of, I think, what is so, so great about the film is that you're right. It's that thing where you're like, oh, this bank heist is not going to be this flawless execution with everybody following the rules. I mean, it's like within the first minute of them bringing those people down into the basement, you got the great Peter Frechette fucking Demucci from Greece 2 pretending that he doesn't have his cell phone. Beautiful. And they had to beat his ass in an office because he just doesn't follow the rules. Like he's just like, you know, they call his phone. Like they they make everybody put their cell phone in a bag. And like Clive Owen is literally going through every phone in the bag looking for this guy's phone because he's convinced the dude did not put his cell phone in the bag. And the minute he calls him and he's got Kanye West as his ringtone. <laughs> I mean, it's just like that thing where you're like, I mean, I don't sympathize with bank robbers at all. But at that moment, I was like, damn, man, you're going to have to put up with all this shit all day long. All these people, they're not going to want to strip for you. They're not going to give you their shit. <laughs> this is part of the part of the business, baby. This is what you got into in New York. And what I love is they fucking plan for it. Like they <laughs> 
fucking knew that. He fucking knew it. The That scene is so hilarious in a weird way because you yeah. see him, like Peter Frechette, like you said, is like, I didn't bring my cell phone today. I left it at home. And Dalton Russell, the Clive Owen character, is like, absolute bullshit, starts going through phones because they've collected – this is, again, something about the heist that makes it such a well-oiled machine. So first they, they yeah. separate the employees from the customers. They take everybody's keys and phones. They separate people by genders. And then they make everyone wear the same jumpsuit. Like, it's just very well-oiled inside that heist. And when he – Dials that number and Gold Digger starts playing. That man <laughs> crumples. And, but then you see Dalton Russell goes into the office and you see him behind this glass kind of like acting out like, oh, I don't know. Should I? Should I not? Like he's just kind of acting out in a very funny scene. Like, well, should he yeah. beat this guy's ass or not? And then he does. Yeah. And it terrifies Everyone else in there. Yeah. And you're starting to figure out, too, there's this moment in the film where, because they're going back and forth between the inside of the bank and now what is the command unit that has been set up outside of the bank with the cops and some spectators. And you're starting to figure out also that something else is up when they start trading hostages with people who are actually working the job. So there's about four people who are involved in the actual robbery. And then you see them acting out that they're part of the <laughs> they're part of the hostage situation, and they get pushed into a room, and they might pull somebody else out, and the person they pull out ends up going into the vault and working on the heist. So it's very complicated because you do not know who's involved. You don't know fully who's involved until the very yes. end. So yeah, I just, I love it. I love watching Denzel in this movie because there are all these different ways that he exerts power and control so subtly. So with Willem Dafoe, for example, Willem Dafoe is the captain of the police squad that's there. And he doesn't want to defer to Frazier. He's like, I don't, like, this is my job. This is my scene. Here's what's up. But the scene really serves the purpose of both Frazier and Mitchell getting their flak jackets, like they're getting their bulletproof vests. But it's really about Frazier getting control. And that, to me, is all Denzel. Like, again, fast talking. Here's what's up. Here's what's going to happen. Here's who I am. This is the way it's going to be. And it's all Denzel. Like, I would hate to be one of his children and try to get out of a punishment with this man because he can talk in circles around anyone. (laughs) So I love that. And there's also, again, like I mentioned at the top of the episode, Denzel does have a very specific walk. And I think the thing that I also really love about him in this movie is that he is full swagger, like just full tilt swagger all the time, every scene. And there's one scene in particular that is so spikely stylized where there's an incident that happens where Denzel, he thinks he has control over the situation. He thinks he's gotten it a way in to Dalton Russell and this bank heist. And then Dalton Russell surprises him by murdering a hostage. And Denzel leaves the trailer, the police trailer, and instead of walking to the bank, you just see him float, like he's like floating through and flying through the crowd, like he's on some kind of stabilizer. And it's such a cool scene. And it's so emotionally impactful. And it's so short but again, it's like this combination of Spike Lee and Denzel that just makes you realize, like, fuck, I am witnessing two different forms of greatness here. Mm-hmm. And it is astonishing to me every time I see it. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what it was so great about seeing this movie for the first time was that just seeing, knowing this movie was, you know, one of Spike Lee's most 
profitable, famous films. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's got so much good talent in this film that are like clamoring to work with him. But then he has this longstanding relationship with Denzel Washington. And that partnership is just, I think, one of the most famous, you know, creative partnerships in Hollywood. And I don't know, to me, it's it's nice to see the two of them both in a different type of movie for both of them. Like yes. to me, because, you know, when you've seen them together in Malcolm X and Mo Better Blues and all these collaborations, you know, it's not this. This seems like a very big Hollywood film. And I kind of like that for them. And I kind of like seeing them together. I mean, you know, seeing Denzel act in his film in this film yes. was really great to me. I agree with you completely because you're also kind of seeing these two creators grow together. And that felt really really incredible to witness as well. Like it's again, it seems like such a small feat, but you're watching these two very established creators spread their wings a little bit and create something new and fresh and cool. And, you know, again, I think the script has so much to do with it, but it's the acting and the directing. It all comes together in a wonderful soup, a wonderful stew that is beautiful to watch. And I think this movie was very successful, but I think it is also pretty forgotten yeah. for a lot of people. Like, I think that there there was an article in Vulture in 2020 by Hunter Harris called Inside Man Still Absolutely Rules. And I love seeing stuff like that because I think that you're right. There are so many movies that come out now all the time that it's very easy to forget these more subtle films. And it's successful, yes, but it's still subtle enough that it's not the first thing people think of when they think, I want to watch a Denzel movie or I want to watch a Spike Lee movie. Yeah. But it is an incredible film and it does absolutely rule and it will keep you fucking riveted. Like I have seen it multiple times and I'm still sucked into the narrative every time. There are details that you miss. There are always things to catch and things to watch, but it is truly just a heist movie that's been turned on its head. And so much of what works for me is that Denzel is so charismatic and such a powerful actor in this movie. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and to get back to like the whole reason for doing this episode is that I feel like with Denzel Washington, you have arguably like, again, one of the most famous black dramatic actors of our generation. And it's that thing where you see two films sort of like when he was at the absolute height portion of his career to these kind of later period films where he's older, but it's never an easy thing, I think. And that's kind of like what we've talked about, you know, in episodes we've done about Black History Month last year, just about how it is harder for Black artists to navigate this entire landscape of Hollywood. Yes. And even if you're super fucking famous and super fucking talented, like Denzel Washington, it's it's not written. It's not certain. And the fact that he has as much gratitude and as much like humbleness in his life after the many years that he's been in this business is kind of amazing. Yeah. And he's so good. And in every point, like he's he's such a good actor. And with both of these films, I feel like they they weren't like super obvious choices, which I like. I mean, we could have done Training Day, we could have done Malcolm X, or we yeah. could have done Philadelphia even. But I think with us choosing these two in particular, I think it was a little cool to see some pockets of his career that, you know, we thought needed to be elevated a little. Couldn't have said it better. So I won't. I won't, I won't even add to that. It's perfect. <laughs> All I'll say is Denzel! <laughs> Come to Danielle's house. <laughs> I'm telling you. Denzel Washington and Luther Vandross. Luther Vandross, growing up, I thought his name was L-U-T-H-A because everyone who came through my house was in my family. And anyway, anytime a Luther Vandross song came on, it was Luther! <laughs> 
Luther and Denzel. Well, we can get Denzel to sit in your garage and wait with your grandma on the oil company to come through. I I think we should have our producer email him too sweet. <laughs> Nothing would please me more. It would be the role of a lifetime. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for doing this. We have one more week of our Black History Month extravaganza. Yes. And do you want to tell these fine folks what our movies are next week? Oh my God, do I? <laughs> okay. Ah, I just realized what the pair up was next week and I can't. I uh, know, I know. It's it's so <laughs> fun. It's it's so fun. I can't wait to do this. So next episode, the movies are Us from 2019 and Tales from the Hood from 1995. Ah! What is the theme, people? What is it? What is the theme? And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, when we discuss the movie Us, we will also get to talk about how the idea for this podcast came to be. Ooh, I think we might. I think we might. Oh, my God. Just in case we never have. I don't know if we have. I can't remember if we ever have. But Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, you gotta have to listen next week. Come on. So many reasons. But hey. Look, a lot of people have been sending us emails, and we really, really appreciate all the great feedback about Black History Month. But if you want to email us, we're at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. And you can please find us on our social media. We are at I saw pod on Instagram and Twitter. We've definitely got I saw what you did merch in the exactly right shop at exactlyrightmedia.com. And don't forget that if you want even more from us, we have a slew of bonus episodes available exclusively at Stitcher Premium. And you can use the promo code SAW for a free month. Yes, please do. We have a lot of fun over there. Speaking of fun, Danielle, it was so fun. A pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Danielle. Thank you. (laughs) See you next week. Bye. been an exactly right production our producer is alexis Samarosi. our engineer is ryo baum our theme song is by tom Bryfogel. artwork by garrett ross our executive producers are georgia hardstart karen kilgariff and danielle kramer you can follow us on instagram and twitter at i saw pod you can email us at i saw what you did pod at gmail and please don't forget to listen subscribe and leave us a review on apple podcasts stitcher or wherever you listen 